0: Picture is Mental Attitudes. Now, Hal Lindsey. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will seal to our hearts the fruits of your Spirit's teaching. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, continuing on our subject of maturity, maturing process, As I was saying yesterday, the important thing in your daily conscious experience is simply to have an attitude of dependence upon the Holy Spirit and just expect the Holy Spirit to fulfill in you what you know of God's Word. And this is a progressive thing. If you're simply with an attitude of dependence upon the Spirit, you're expecting the Holy Spirit to work in your life, then at that moment you are pleasing to God. And you are filled with the Spirit until some conscious incident where you stop depending upon the Holy Spirit. So you just assume that if you are with an attitude of faith and you haven't consciously stopped depending upon the Spirit for some reason, that you are filled with the Spirit. So you just relax and keep your eyes on Christ and expect Him to work in your life. I think a good illustration of God being pleased with a baby believer, though we might see some things in his life that we think are not so good, if the believer... The baby believer is walking independence upon the spirit as much as he knows that he's pleasing to God would be something that happened a couple of months ago. One of my little twins named Jenny Lou did a picture for me and she said it was for Father's Day and she brought it to me and it was a Crayola picture of a bird and uh So I looked at it, and you could hardly tell it was a bird, but that's what she said it was. And she had a little tree by it and everything, and down underneath, in uh, the very immature way of her writing, she had, I love Daddy. And she says, this is just for you, Daddy. And I thought about that for a minute, and I said, you know, I thought to myself, this picture is full of fault, in that if you criticized it from the standpoint of art, it wasn't very arty, but it had no blame at all. And if I live to be a hundred and Jenny Lou becomes the greatest artist in the world, she could never give me a picture that could please me more than the one she drew when she was five. And you know, this is the way it is with God. He looks at our life in the light of what we understand at that moment. How we are in our maturity. And as long as we simply have an attitude of dependence upon Him, and we know He loves us, and we simply are walking out of a motivation of desiring to be pleasing to Him, then that is very pleasing to Him. And if you live to be a great believer, and if through the grace of God He may make another Billy Graham out of you, or He may make some great believer out of you, the things that you do as a baby believer by simply depending upon Him and wanting to please Him will not satisfy Him anymore or make him uh, be more pleased with you. You see, that's how God looks at our life. He looks at our basic desires, our basic motive, and he sees that simple attitude of faith. Jesus said, become like little children. And I believe that this is one of the ways that he meant that. A little child walks with a simple trust, punish parents. And a little child doesn't understand everything, but when they are seeking to do something out of love for you, though there might be all kinds of fault in it, it's acceptable and it's pleasing. Today I want to talk about a very, very important subject which relates to the maturing process, mental attitudes. I want to focus on this in a special way. Mental attitudes. Proverbs 23, seven says, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. The most important part about your whole life is what you think. The focus of your mind. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55 for a minute. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 12. Here we see the necessity of having our minds renewed. Someone asked me yesterday if I could think of some scripture that would prove what I was setting forth on the screen about the Holy Spirit working in our subconscious mind to straighten out on this. As we walk in dependence upon the Spirit on the conscious level, He applies the Word of God in our subconscious mind and really straightens out a lot of psychological problems as we just count and expect upon the Holy Spirit to do it. This passage shows why our minds have to be renewed and who it is that does it. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 12. Verses 6 and 7 talks about coming to have salvation, then the process that is to take place after that. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and intre- returns not there but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing to which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. This is a beautiful poetic passage which shows that our thoughts as a, a new believer and even as a believer walking in the flesh are not God's thoughts. God's thoughts are not natural to us. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's God's ways and his thinking above ours. And the process of maturing is concerned with transforming your mind and renewing it into God's way of thinking. Now, how does this happen? Well, he says in verse 11 that his word goes forth to accomplish that. And he says, my word won't return to me void. God changes our way of thinking as we, depending upon the Spirit, get into His Word and have our thoughts transformed to His way of thinking. Our worldview is changed by the Holy Spirit as we begin to see things from God's perspective. And basically, as I said yesterday, it's a process of coming from the human viewpoint of life to the divine viewpoint of life. Basically, the human viewpoint of life is looking at life from the standpoint of your ability to cope with it. The divine viewpoint of life is looking at life from the standpoint of Christ's ability to cope with it in you through the Holy Spirit. It's seeing life in in perspective of his ability to work in you and to deal with your problems whatever they may be, psychological, financial, sin-wise in the sense of temptation, whatever, it's to see those things in the light of Christ's ability to cope with them in you. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Page 311, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Here Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh what he means by this is though we walk in human flesh we don't war according to human abilities we're in a warfare as Christians and the warfare is primarily around your mind this is where Satan seeks to blind this is where you get erroneous concepts of life this is where you have a lack of faith and so forth the warfare is around your mind. And Paul says we don't fight with human weapons. Even though we're in the flesh, we don't war according to the standards and the strengths of man. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare is not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now this is talking about the fortresses of the mind. Those well entrenched wrong views, those prejudices, those ideas about life that don't jive with God's thoughts. And so he says, The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. What are they? Huh? We don't walk in the flesh, we walk in the spirit. You see, this is what he's talking about. They're not fleshly, they're of the spirit and the Spirit's power to work on your thoughts and your mental processes. And the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to live in living power to your heart and begins to transform your way of thinking about things. As I said yesterday, one of the major parts of your thinking is that He shows you that whereas in life all of your relationships have been established on a performance basis... I mean that's just a fact of, of life for us. People don't accept you just because you're you. People accept you because of what you do or what you are. And if you happen to be not uh, happen to not be what people like, well you're not accepted. Or if you don't perform something that benefits the man in the world, then you're not accepted. Well God says, look, that's not the the game, the rules of the game when you're with me. And so. You have to bring down that fortress of wrong thinking. And the Holy Spirit does it as He shows you from the Word that God accepts you just like you are. That He loves you unconditionally because of what Christ did for you, not because of what you do for Him or ever will do for Him. And that's just one of the many fortresses that have to be destroyed by the Holy Spirit as He works into you God's thoughts. As it says in Isaiah, God's word comes down to the earth to accomplish his will, and it will not return void. As the holy, If you count upon the Holy Spirit to teach you God's way of thinking, he'll do it. Just an attitude of dependence. As you expose yourself to God's thoughts, depending on the Spirit, he does this. Yes. Well, you mean about the word not returning void? The question was, can we apply that verse to the non-Christian in the sense that if we use the word on him, it won't return void? Yes, we can. Although things have to be communicated. That's why we have such things as the four spiritual laws. By the way, we just revised the four spiritual laws. And I'm so excited about this new four spiritual laws, I've, I can hardly stand it and they'll be out soon. Yes, sir. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 12, which I read at the first of the hour. Uh, God's word will not return void. And this is what I was talking about yesterday. Say that this is your mind. You're an egghead. All right. Now here, here's the heart, which is a symbol of the control center of your mind. This is the seat of your intellect emotions, and will. This is the mediator actually between your conscious and your subconscious mind. And uh, up here we have the conscious mind, but the vast part of our mind is subconscious. And the subconscious mind operates as kind of the guidance system of our thinking in life. Down below, of course, there is a vast, Influence of the first layers of our subconscious mind which, was, which were our first impressions of life in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth year of life. And those inherited characteristics of thought which come from our parents, at least the way we respond to things. Now all of us have what we might call soul kinks down here in the mind. And those soul kinks are wrong wrong interpretations of things that happen to us. Wrong which produce wrong thoughts. Now commonly psychiatry has said that the answer to the psychological problems of a person and don't kid yourself because we are fallen creatures we all have certain problems some have more than others but everyone has certain uh, psychological problems. Psychiatry has said that the way to solve this is to find out why you have certain thoughts like hostility like guilt, like depression, like a, a sense, no sense of self-worth and so forth. The idea is to find where way back in your past you, you had an experience or some traumatic experience which formed a wrong, uh, thought which keeps coming back in other forms and what they try to do is take you through, uh, through counseling back to what the actual incident was Bring it to light so that you understand what it was, and then the idea is once you understand what did it, you're healed. Only it doesn't work that way. If you have homicidal tendencies, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to know that uh, it's because mommy didn't break in on the potty right. And so then usually, and I'm talking about the non-Christian psychiatrist now, usually what they do is have you sublimate. In other words, you've got this one dangerous drive. So they usually have you sublimate that drive for something else that's less dangerous. Or they have you take uh, a... Uh, let's say your problem is a root problem of guilt they say your standards are too high what you need to do is get rid of all standards and uh, you know if you ha- if you're feeling guilty about sexual relations well just realize that there's nothing wrong with that go ahead and so we have a psychiatrist like the one at USC an outstanding psychiatrist write an article in Los Angeles Times that year or so ago, where he said that there is a fantastic increase of mental illness among teenagers, and he said he discovered that the primary cause was a sense of guilt about sexual promiscuity, and he said the startling thing to him was that these kids were raised in homes where there was no standards at all about sexual relations. So, they didn't feel guilty because of some standards they had been given. It was an innate sense of guilt which comes from that conscience that's a part of every man's being. So, it's not the environment that makes him feel guilty, it's the fact that the conscience does. So, what do you do with things like this? Well, in some cases, It may be useful to find out, basically, what what is the problem. But I say that uh, introspection and uh, the counseling which takes you back to think about your past and all of this can be extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous because it can turn your, your focus of your mind inward and you begin to focus on your problems to the point where there is no faith and it wipes out any hope. Man cannot live without hope. Now God's always had a way of dealing with this. When a man comes to know Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in his heart. Now, the heart is the place that Jeremiah said in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In other words, who can understand the reasons why he has all of these very instinctual drives and hostilities and so forth? And your heart is deceitful in the sense that you don't know why you do certain things. And in most cases, I don't think it's important to know why. Because you can realize this, that God accepts you just like you are completely the moment you accept Christ. He knows all of the environmental background you have, and He accepts you. And furthermore, He says that He gives you the Holy Spirit and he doesn't make any exceptions about what the Holy Spirit can deal with. Find me an exception where it says if you if you walk in the Spirit that the Holy Spirit won't deal with your problems. It says if you walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh includes all of the things that try to come up from the old self. Now what a person needs to know about his temptation towards sin, or or whether it's these psychological drives that come up that uh, you don't understand. What you need to know is that, number one, the old self which has these things has already been judged, and judicially that old self is dead. Now it's trying to manifest itself, but as far as God is concerned... You have authority over that because you've been set free from its clutch. You've been put to death and judicially the old self is dead. And so, when I have a drive come up into my mind, one of the ones that used to bother me so much, I just say, you're dead, pal. And the new self I have, I can accept because God has made me a new creation in Christ. And without understanding why I have certain thoughts come to my mind, I just say, Lord, I don't understand this. But you do. And I'm just counting upon the Holy Spirit to deal with this. And he does. So, this drive is taken back here. And I've found that as you consciously just walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and the reason you can is because you know Christ loves you. You know you can trust Him to deal with whatever your problem is. There, there's no category psychological problems and category spiritual problems. They're all the same. There's no difference. The Holy Spirit came in to progressively deliver in my experience my soul. And so the Holy Spirit, as I consciously just count upon Him to deal with it, He renews my mind, and He works upon these things, and He even begins to so apply the Word of God in my heart. Though these things are still there, the Word of God clears up my thinking to where I can see that no matter what my problem is, I can count upon the Holy Spirit to deal with them. And counseling college students for the last seven years, I've found that there's a tremendous amount of psychological problems. And yet, I've seen people who were seriously ill. I mean, you know, they they were really neurotic. I've seen them delivered by the Holy Spirit as they simply stopped trying to wrestle with their drives and their thoughts. They stopped trying to figure out why they thought this or why they thought that and they just say, Lord, I don't understand it, and I don't have to. I'm counting upon you to take care of this. And they just have an attitude of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with it, because He loves you so much, He'll do it. And He accepts you like you are, so just because you have some peculiar pattern of thinking that comes into mind from time to time, you have certain areas of temptation. I mean, you know, let's let's be frank and candy to life like some homosexuals that I've known just because in their old self that was their particular area of weakness this doesn't mean God can't deal with it and as a matter of fact uh, you don't have to turn to this passage but I'll give you the reference In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks of the kind of people that the Corinthians were when they accepted Christ. He said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed. Aorist tense. You were once and for all washed. But you were sanctified. Aorist tense. Once and for all sanctified. But you were justified once and for all. Aorist tense. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Now, he goes on to show that some of these very people were having sexual relations in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 20. But he says, God no longer sees you as a fornicator because you're in Christ and he doesn't count your sins against you. He says, that's what you were, and even though you may slip back into that as a Christian, he says, God can't see you that way anymore. You've been justified. So he says, isn't it a little incongruous to do those things which you've been washed from? Turn from it. You see, God has so completely delivered us judicially from what we were that he doesn't have to count those things against us. And because of that, we're set free from any obligation from, to it. And we have, through the Holy Spirit and through our union with Christ, authority over those old thoughts. Authority to say, you are no longer my master. You no longer have authority over me and depend upon the Holy Spirit to carry that out. And he does. But Satan will come in try to say, oh, you're a Christian? Look at that thought you just had. But the mental attitude can be changed. 2 Corinthians 10, it says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, although they can be as a Christian. If you try to fight your your temptations or your psychological drives by the flesh, then you're going to be defeated. And just trying to grope with them will get you into defeat because that takes your eyes off of the problem solver. The worst thing in the world is to become obsessed with your sins. And that's what a lot of people did with an erroneous idea of confession of sin. If they felt like there was a cloud between themselves and God, what would they do? Oh, it must be some secret sin that I can't remember. And I haven't confessed it, so therefore God hates me. And it's just walking by faith at this moment that counts, realizing that you have been forgiven. And you feel like, and for various reasons we can, while we're walking in dependence upon the Spirit, because of maybe some tragedy in our life, maybe we've just lost a loved one or something, maybe we emotionally are just under a tremendous pressure so that our emotions are depressed. And yet, did you know that right in the midst of that depression, you can be walking in the Spirit and having victory? Because victory doesn't mean freedom from emotional strain, always. When You want me to prove that? When the Lord Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say to his disciples? My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Now, was Jesus filled with the Spirit then? You better believe he was. He never sinned, and he was always filled with the Spirit. But he had victory because he was counting upon God's basic love and will for his life, and he was just trusting uh, trusting his Father to work in him through the Holy Spirit what was right. So even though he was shook up, in a sense, in his emotions, his intellect and his will was stable by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, are in, in uh, several places in 2 Corinthians, and I want you to read this uh, over the weekend. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, particularly verses 16 through 33. Now you'll see some of the inner conflicts that the Apostle Paul had. And yet in the midst of that, he had victory. He talks about being knocked down but not knocked out. He talks about uh, being depressed because his friend Titus didn't show up and so on, but he said, I still had the victory in the midst of it. Now, the point is, is your basic focus of life counting upon God's love and and depending upon the Holy Spirit? Looking away from the problem, not pretending it isn't there, but recognizing it's there and committing it to the Holy Spirit and just expecting Him to deal with it. That's victory. And the more you grow in God's thoughts, the more stability you'll have. That's the maturing process. But even in the midst of the roughest trials, you can have peace. Now the question is, what do you do when all of a sudden you you feel kind of depressed and you feel like there's a heaviness over you? I've felt this many times. What do you think you ought to do at that point? What do you think? Huh? Pray? Pray is all right. If you pray the right kind of prayer. What else? What? Do what? I can't hear you. Go to the Word, all right? All right, go to the Word. What else? I can't hear you. (laughs) Get the sword and kill the Satan. Okay, there you are. Okay, back there. I think you're hitting at it the closest right there. Thank God you don't live by emotions. Now, you see, what I'm driving at is when you... There may... You know, everybody has different emotional patterns. Some people have emotional patterns that because of their past go up and down, especially girls. Monthly cycle of emotional patterns. And this is when Satan really wipes the girls out and men are not free from it I'm a very emotional guy myself and uh, so the temptation is if you emotionally feel kind of drained is to think that everything is lost you know you're just out of it and boy it must be some secret sin that you forgot to confess and that's not it at all The thing that I do at that point is just begin to remember. You know what you ought to remember? What you've been learning in this course this year, or this month, this past month. To remember that you're in Christ and nothing can really touch you. To remember that you're already forgiven. And if God wants you to acknowledge and agree with Him about some sin, He'll put it in your mind. You don't have to go looking for it. But just to count upon the fact that you're accepted with God, you're forgiven. You don't have to feel depressed. If your emotions are kind of out of whack, thank God, as this man back here said, that you're not you don't have to live by your emotions. We don't live this life by our feelings. We live it by counting upon what God said. And I just claim a promise. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever for in the Lord Jehovah's everlasting strength. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. For I've seen times when I was walking in the Spirit and I just would be seized with terror. Be afraid. For no one for no real reason it was Satan and uh, I remember one time I uh, was getting prepared for a very important uh, evangelistic outreach and I started having a uh, the most vicious premonition that I was going to die and I couldn't explain it and I, I, I couldn't get rid of it and then I realized what was happening and I just took I just realized, I said, thank you, Lord, that I'm seated in the heavenlies in you. And I thank you that your authority is mine. And just as the traffic officer can hold up his hands and stop traffic, though they're more powerful than he, I'm holding up my hand right now and saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, Satan, you're bound. And the Lord stopped him. And I just thank the Lord that I didn't have to live by my feelings, but by what God said. And I claim the promise, one of my favorites, Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And you see, usually at the bottom of depression is a sense of guilt and a sense of estrangement from God that somehow you're not really accepted with him. You can't think sometimes of anything specific but it's just this sense of guilt and, and God doesn't accept you. That's uh, that's the old self. Motivated and energized by Satan trying to feed you that lie. And the thing to do at that point is just to remember you don't have to feel guilty about anything. You're forgiven. You've been cleansed. You're justified. As a matter of fact, Paul says all things are lawful to me. All things are not expedient. But he says the scripture clearly teaches us that God no longer counts our sins against us so we don't have to sit around depressed or under a cloud just start remembering who you are and whose you are that's the important thing whose you are and that's the mental attitude that's important and as you simply count upon the Holy Spirit, He begins to work in your heart. Turn to Romans chapter... or No, wait a minute. We better not turn from here yet. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5, it says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, the one who's walking in the Spirit needs to deal with his thought pattern. Expect the Holy Spirit to deal with things. You know, one of the great problems is spiritual Walter Mitty's. And this is a carryover from the flesh. Walter Mitty, as some may or may not know, is a guy who is always living in dream worlds. You know, he was always, because he felt like he wasn't really accepted by people, he was always dreaming he was this great ace that was shooting down all kinds of enemy aircraft. Then the next minute he'd be this great physician that had just successfully made the, uh, the first heart transplant or something like that. He was always these illusions of grandeur. Because he couldn't face reality, he had to live in a dream world. And there are lots of Christians like that. And one of the most dangerous things in the world is to live and dream world, to get away from reality. Listen, a Christian can face reality no matter how tough it is if you go to the Word and believe the promises of God and just depend upon the Holy Spirit to deal with reality. And if people don't seem to accept you, Remember, God accepts you and and feel sorry for them because they haven't found out that God accepted you and they ought to. It's their loss, not yours. And you know, as you become stable in your vertical relationship with God, you see you're secure in Him. You don't have to get your approbation from people. You get it from Him. Then you can really have fantastic fellowship with others. But you know, in the years I've been in Crusade, I've seen a real danger. It's no one's fault, it's just an inherent danger of a movement like this. That young believers who need, they need fellowship with others because as we fellowship with other believers, we're a brand new believer, they simply nurture us along and they get us to going because we see faith in their life and we see that it can work in ours. And uh, we see their love for us and their acceptance for us and we learn what God's acceptance is. But you know, you're not supposed to stay that way. And I've seen believers in the seven years I've been in Crusade make the fatal mistake of beginning to base their life upon what the crowd thought or motivate their life according to being accepted by the crowd. And here's what I mean. You know, someone who all their life has not felt accepted comes into this vital group of crusade, the local local action group. And he sees that, boy, the guy who's really considered number one is the guy who wins all kinds of people to Christ so he's scared to death and he guts it out and he says I'm going to win people to Christ in order that they'll accept me so he he leads people to Christ and he can't wait to say how many he's led to Christ because this gives him a status you see now there's nothing wrong with sharing results but watch your motive what's your motive is it because you're so thrilled that you were used by the Holy Spirit or is it that your motive was basically to impress others and make them accept you? Now, you know something? You can you can have the motive of seeking the approbation of God all you want to if you're walking in the Spirit. Because you want to be pleasing to Him only realize that that's not going to make you more acceptable. It's just that it should be the natural motivation of the heart is because God loved you, you love Him, and you want to please Him. So that's the right motive. But watch out for trying to use spiritual things as a status symbol with people. And I've seen kids seek to gain acceptance by performing for God and then saying, well, you know, look what I did. And I've seen also another danger that some kids begin, instead of founding their relationship vertically, they found it horizontally. And they become so dependent upon others in the action group that they they depend upon them for their personality needs now action groups are primarily to help us learn to trust christ not to learn to trust each other for what christ ought to do i hope i'm being clear here There's a shade of difference here that's vital now we should trust each other but not lean on each other to solve our personality needs which only christ can solve because only Christ can get down into the mind through the Holy Spirit and deal with your personality needs where you need You are complete in Christ, not in a group. Now, because you're complete in Christ, you can have a wonderful fellowship with others because there's no greater place to be than with a bunch of people who are depending on Christ and they realize that they are what they are because of the grace of God, so they're not trying to impress anyone. They're just what they are. And so you can relax. You don't have to try to get people to accept you. You know, you're just accepted because you belong to Christ. And when people have the right mental attitude, it's just wonderful to be around them. What a group. But when people are trying to gain greater acceptance in the group, and you have spiritual kings of the mountain, you know, where they circle around, here's this guy his leader this day, well, uh, in the heart of some they'll say, well, let's see, what makes him accepted the most? Okay, you circle the field and you find out what his strong points are and then you look for his weaknesses. You start sharing with the group, oh, we've really got to pray for old Joe. Yeah, what's wrong with Joe? I didn't think there was anything wrong with Joe. Well, I wouldn't tell you, but so you can pray more intelligently, Joe is really having a problem. Blah, blah, blah. And then you start trying to excel, Joe, so that you're considered the number one the group don't kid yourself this happens I've seen it and I've seen a lot of people come up to guys like Bill Counts and and myself and Flack and say boy you know is there going to be a school I want to learn to speak like you did yeah why do you want to do that to please the Lord or because you're up in front of a lot of people. You know, the only reason that guys like me are up here is because the Lord has so convinced me that I'm not doing it that I don't have any illusions of grandeur. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't work through me if I had illusions of grandeur that boy God's using me because I'm so great are these people like me because of something in me that is so great now don't get me wrong I believe that the Holy Spirit works through us and we're not robots We're we're personalities And God loves you for what you are, distinctly. There's something different about every one of us that God loves. And He takes what we are and He works through it. But we have to realize it's God doing the working. I can accept myself that He's working through, but it's still the Lord that's doing it. And we have to have the right motivation. The reason I want to teach you guys... Is because I want the Lord to be pleased with you. And that's been my motivation throughout this month. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that we cannot be conformed to the world but transformed through the renewing of our minds. And I pray that each one here through the Holy Spirit remember and learn more of the things that were taught in this month the Holy Spirit will take these things and apply them in living power to where the need is Father I thank you above all that we are complete in Christ that each one of us here seated in the heavenlies in him That therefore we are acceptable to you, therefore to ourselves. Father, I just pray that each one will increasingly be available to the Holy Spirit. Guard each one's heart from being deceived and wrong-thinking. We thank you that that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Christ's name, amen. Today's lecture is guidance. Now, howling. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be taught by your Spirit. We express our dependence upon him to reveal how the Word of God applies to our life, to bring us to the image of Christ. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, here's your schedule for next week. Our scheduled time for examination is Tuesday at 8.45. Tuesday at 8.45. But since we're not having a final examination, I'm going to lecture for two hours. And, uh, I won't speak the whole time because I want to interact with you and uh, answer questions and so forth. But I will consider this a part of the course. So if you're not going to be here, you better look for a way to get this this, uh, material that we're going over. You know, in future IBSs, I think... I thought we made it clear but there are a lot of people who plan to come only for the four weeks and never made any intention of staying for the five and as uh, far as I'm concerned the course is incomplete unless you make it up some way and so I want you to make arrangements to get that two hour session somehow uh... Now, here are the doctrines, though, that constitute the uh, class project. These are the doctrines I want you to define, give the main passage of Scripture or passages of Scripture on it, to uh, give a diagram or an illustration of it, and to show how it applies to how it relates to the four spiritual laws, either the laws themselves or how you present the laws, and how it relates to living the Christian life, how it relates to factors related to the Christian life. All right, here are the doctrines. Justification. Identification. Identification. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit. Regeneration. Now on this you can use my diagram if you want to. It's all right. Not patented. Uh, what it means to be filled with the Spirit or to walk in the Spirit. I view those as the same thing. So what, how the Spirit works in your life. Define that shortly. All right, the concept of uh, the security of the believer. And the concept of Maturity as a Christian. That's what we're going to talk about today. Maturity of the believer. Forgiveness is uh, one also. Forgiveness is the other, and that's all. I'm not going to require you to do that. Freedom. Uh, Joyce Winkle here a, what is it she's in the general class she'd be down at the Arrowhead Village all right Please turn to Second Peter, Chapter Three, page four oh four. Now, if you're visiting the class for today, you'll just have to realize we've been through a lot of material before and built up to what we're saying today. You might not understand a thing we're saying, but uh, the class as a whole has been built up to this point. So 2, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, page 404. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. But the important thing is I want to notice here, <clears throat> one of the great commands to the Christian is to grow. Now, what do you grow in? You grow in an understanding of grace, <clears throat> which is the unlimited provision of God To bring you into an abundant and victorious life, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you something honestly. You answer me honestly. Where do we find out about Jesus Christ primarily? Huh? The Bible. That's right. So if we're going to learn about Jesus Christ, then we're going to have to spend some time in the Bible, aren't we? Now, we've gone through very carefully to show that uh, a person shouldn't set up laws and rules with a motive for their life that, you know, if you, if you read the Bible so many hours a day, well, that guarantees that you're going to be mature. There are a lot of people who do that, and they, they're they spiritual morons. But, as you're walking in dependence upon the Spirit, He will guide you and create a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. And the reason is because, <clears throat> not that you just want to learn a bunch of doctrines and sort of become a doctrinal dueler. This is the way a lot of people fill out their personality when their personalities uh, crisp. You know, they, uh, they never had any reason for being distinguished among the crowd before they were a Christian, and now they learn quite a bit about the Word, so that becomes their status symbol. And so some people use their knowledge of the Word of God just simply to prove how great they are, and uh, they, they spend their whole time debating with each other are challenging people to a debate about the Scripture. And what it is is an opportunity to show off how much they know. Now, we're not talking about that. But there is a sense in which growing as a Christian cannot take place unless, as a Spirit-controlled believer, you simply study the Word of God with the view to learning about Jesus Christ. And growing in your understanding of him, and growing in his uh, understanding what he is like, which is what the pattern is the Holy Spirit wants to bring about in your life, and so forth. Now, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 for a minute. Verses 1 and 2. Now, in the last part of 1 Peter chapter 1, we're shown that actually this written word is the instrument which the Holy Spirit uses to bring a person to have a spiritual birth. It's called the seed. It says in verse 23, You have been born again not of seed, which is perishable, but of imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. And it shows everything else in this life perishes, but the Word of God's going to endure forever. Now, it shows that the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it in living power to a person's heart and brings about this new birth where you are given a new dimension of life altogether, you have spiritual life imparted to you. And because you have this new dimension of life, you then have a capacity and a means of perception whereby you can understand God as he is revealed in the word. So therefore it says in verse 25, But the word of the Lord abides forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all guile, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, which is what you are when you first become a Christian, you're a baby spiritually, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, you already have salvation, but you need to grow up in it, is the idea. And you do this as the Holy Spirit teaches you God's viewpoint of life, what we call the divine viewpoint of life. Now, let me show you something about maturity. Let's say that this is the baseline of Christian experience. Here you are at the point where you accept Jesus Christ and his gift of forgiveness which he died to give you at the cross. You simply accept a gift of pardon for your sins past, present, and future. And that pardon he procured by taking the rap for every sin you had ever committed and paying the penalty. All right, at that point you're born into the family of God. And as far as maturity is concerned, you're a baby. Now, what needs to happen is for you to progressively grow in maturity, and maturity is a process. It doesn't happen instantly. In fact, as long as we're in this life, we're in a process of growing toward maturity. Now, there's babyhood, and then there's the a period somewhere in here in the middle where we call spiritual adolescence. And up here we, we grow toward maturity. No one ever becomes absolutely mature in this life, although we can get to a high level of what may be classified as maturity. Now, where a lot of Christians really get fouled up is that when we teach about Walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people have the idea that here's a spiritual baby and that the minute he simply claims the ministry of the Holy Spirit and he begins to depend upon the Holy Spirit, that that means he's supposed to be mature. There's a difference between being filled with the Spirit and being mature. A big difference. Now, there are babies who are controlled by the Holy Spirit at any given moment. There are adolescent Christians who are controlled by the Spirit at any given moment. And there are mature Christians who are controlled by the Spirit. Now, one of the big differences between the mature and the baby is that the mature person is filled with the Spirit much more Uh, than the one who is a baby. Now, the illustration that's given in the Scripture scripture is walking. It's a good illustration, walking in the Spirit. Now, I remember when I was uh, seven years old, I had a terrible attack of appendicitis. I almost died. They took my appendix out, and I had to be in bed for two months. When I got out of bed, I had to learn how to walk all over again. And I remember... In those first few days, take, I'd take a couple of steps and fall flat on my face. And then I began to learn how to walk again. And I found that I now I rarely ever fall on my face, although I do once in a while. Old slew foot. But there's a big difference now between now and then. And walking is a real good illustration of learning to walk in the Spirit. Now, a baby will fall often. A, manure, a mature person will not fall manure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Edit that tape. <laughs> Divine manure spreader. But uh, anyway... A mature, one, a Christian who's going toward maturity falls less frequently. Now when I say fall, I'm talking about he starts walking in the flesh. Now you remember the two circles where we illustrated that at any given moment a believer is either walking in the Spirit, walking in dependence upon the Spirit of God who lives within every Christian, or he's walking in the flesh, which means he's depending upon himself. Now, that is true of you at any given moment. But you are in a process daily of growing, or you should be. Now, how do you go from babyhood toward maturity? That's the big question. Well, of course, one of the big keys is, first of all, to walk in the Spirit. Walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who uh, makes it possible for you to move toward maturity. Now, every moment that you are walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit is a moment of growth. When you are walking in the flesh, it is a time when you are not growing at that moment. Now, if a person, let's say he grows up here to uh, uh, just about spiritual adolescence, and that's the most dangerous period. It's the period of spiritual teenagers. And, uh, you know, you get a little knowledge and you think you know everything. And you don't realize it's a little knowledge. And so you, you really get to the point where the admonition is given in the Scripture, let he that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And uh, so you can get to this point, and then for one reason or another, you just stop depending upon the Holy Spirit. You start depending upon the flesh. Now, the, when you start walking in the flesh for a few days... That is, the most, most of your time you're walking in the flesh, you don't immediately start losing your maturity and go back down toward babyhood. But if you habitually do that, you will begin to retrogress in your maturity. And it is possible for one who has grown, let's say, to this degree of maturity, to uh, something, some uh, area of his life he, uh, st- for some reason he starts walking in the flesh and there's some sin in his life which he's not willing to deal with because he, he's, uh, he wants to cling to this thing. So the Holy Spirit is grieved in his life. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't turn from unbelief to belief so the Holy Spirit can deal with this sin in his life. So he, he hangs on to it and he starts going back down the ladder. Now that's what Hebrews chapter 6 is all about. There was a group of people who had actually gotten way up here, apparently, at one time, in Hebrews chapter 6. And because they started offering animal sacrifices again in order to escape persecution, and because they would not turn from that and start depending on the Spirit again, it says that they couldn't be renewed to repentance about the basic teachings of the Christian life they couldn't be renewed to understand the very fundamentals of the Christian faith because they had done this for so long that they had retrogressed down here to what we can call the period, uh, the degree of spiritual moron. A spiritual moron is one who doesn't even have assurance that he's a Christian anymore because the way that we have assurance that we're a believer according to Romans 8 about verse 16 is it says that God's spirit Witnesses to our spirit that we're the sons of God. Now, you can get so out of it as a Christian that you're not even sure you're a Christian anymore. And it's because you're habitually walking in the flesh. Walking in the walk. Now. You're habitually walking in the flesh. And uh, you're walking in the flesh simply because you're not depending upon the Holy Spirit. That's the reason. And so there is this danger of getting to the point where you just stop walking in the spirit and you retrogress. Now there's some other, other important features about this. I want to give characteristics of what it means to be mature. What are the characteristics of maturity? This is all important. Now, when I give these characteristics of maturity, I want you to realize that these go in the result column of, of the, uh, you remember the chart we had? The result column. Oh, Here we are, Christian life. Christian life has one source, One means, and many results. You've got all of those results that we've been talking about. The source of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. The means by which he works in our life is by grace, through faith, which is simply an attitude of dependence upon the holy spirit the results are many but here is one of the main results is maturing the holy spirit matures us and this is a result of walking in dependence upon the spirit the more i walk in dependence upon the spirit the more i am maturing now here are the definite aspects of maturing as a christian number one knowledge And I mean by this correct knowledge. In other words, you get a correct understanding of what the Bible is saying about you, about Christ, about life. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 9 through 16. Knowledge. Wisdom. Now, wisdom is a factor of maturity because it's one thing to have a theoretical knowledge about life. It's another thing to have wisdom, which means the ability to apply what you know to your daily experience. The Holy Spirit produces a progressive wisdom. And uh, this, of course, is integrating your knowledge with your experience. And the Holy Spirit gives you many opportunities to use what you know. As soon as you learn something, he'll throw you into the laboratory of life where everything seems like it's caving in on you and uh, you have unexplainable problems. You don't understand what's happening. Well, those have happened in order that you can trust the Lord to work in your life and, and learn to use what you know. There are no, there's really no such thing as a theoretical Christian. Perfect example of that is that uh, in John chapter 6, where Jesus turned uh, a couple of loaves of bread uh, into enough to feed 5,000. The disciples uh, learned a great deal from that, theoretically. They watched and they saw this happen. And then we're told that Jesus commanded the disciples to get into a boat and go across the sea, and he didn't go with them. Then it says he went up in the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus, we know, knew all things because the Scripture says so many times he knew all things. He knew that he was sending those men out into a storm, one of the most violent ones they would ever see on that Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus went up to pray while they rode into a storm. Now, why do you think he did that? Well, let's see if those knuckleheads learned anything from what they saw him do. See, he wanted to see, and I say knuckleheads lovingly because that's what I am. We're all real dense when it comes to learning about Jesus and what he wants to do in our life. So, Jesus had just shown his love for people, his love for them in particular. He had just shown his power to meet the problems of life by taking a few loaves of bread and feeding more than 5,000 people. Now, he wanted to see if they could take that bit of information and apply it to a new unexplained circumstance. So he deliberately sent them into a storm, and he deliberately didn't go with them. Then he went up to pray. What do you think he prayed about that they would understand that they would remember what they had seen and tr- just trust that Jesus would take care of them. After all, he told them to go into it, therefore he, he, it was his will that they were in the storm. And so he wanted them to learn and experience what they had just learned in theory. And so, boy, they got into a storm, and these men were fishermen, therefore they had been on the sea all their life, and yet they were panicked. They didn't learn. So Jesus, in pure grace, walks out on the water to meet them. And he, in essence, says, when are you ever going to learn? Well, they finally learned, just like I hope all of us will finally learn. What he was seeking to teach them is what we would call knowledge plus wisdom. Knowledge plus wisdom equals the divine viewpoint of life now the divine viewpoint of life is simply this and this is a big part of maturing the divine viewpoint of life is to look at every situation in your life from the standpoint of christ's ability to cope with it through you to look at every problem from the standpoint of christ's ability to cope with it through you now the human viewpoint of life is to look at life from the standpoint of your ability to cope with it. Now, if you're coming on the, camp, on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, there's one disease that you better get rid of real quick, and that's the human viewpoint. And most of you are coming on staff, according to what I surveyed the other day. And I'll tell you one thing. You're going to be thrown up against so many situations where you haven't the power, the wisdom, the understanding, the money, or anything else to deal with it, that if you're looking at it from your ability to cope with it, you're, boy, you're going to be in a mental institution before next spring. You had better get the divine viewpoint of life, and the Holy Spirit will give it to you, if you'll just walk in dependence upon Him moment by moment. Now, that's a big part of maturity. Now, of course, at the bottom of the divine viewpoint of life, that is, uh, what really makes the divine viewpoint work is Ephesians chapter 3. Let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Page 328. Page 328. Now, this letter was written to a a group of people who had quite a bit of knowledge, and they had a degree of maturity. But yet I want you to notice what Paul prayed for them. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Now, that's what happens when you're walking in the Spirit. The only reason that we can walk in the Christian life is because as we simply depend upon the Spirit, we are strengthened with power through His Spirit who dwells in us in the inner man. The inner man is the new self. And God's business in the Christian is to make your new self. That is this, this new self that is you since you received Christ. The old self was crucified at that point and is legally dead. The old self can pop, pop up a few times but legally he's dead. What you are today is a new person in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. So God's business is to constantly be making your new self into the image of Christ. And you know something? You can accept yourself today. And you can accept yourself because Christ is making your new self since you were born again into something that you can accept. Now, this is a very important point. The Holy Spirit's working with power in your inner man to do just that. And, you know, a lot of people think that uh, if they do something, it's Christ who did it. If they do something that is good, it's Christ that did it. If they do something that is bad, it's them that did it. Or it's uh, him that did it, or something like that. Not a grammarian in English, I'll guarantee you. But uh, anyway, the idea, this can develop into a subtle thing, which is dangerous, and that is to say, well, therefore, I must hate myself. Since Christ does everything that's good and I do everything that's bad, then there's nothing that we're, that I can accept. And the idea is, you know, like, uh, let's say my wife would say to me, Hal, I really hate you, but I, I love Christ who's in you. No, that's not the way it is. You see, Christ is making me in my new self into someone that she loves. Not just Christ who's in me, but me, which Christ is working in, she loves. Because Christ works in persons. He chose you for what you are. You're a unique person, and he's working on that. That's his building block. And you can accept who you are as a believer. He's working on that. What he does through us is through us. And so I can accept the new self that Christ is making in me and in my inner man. I don't have to go around with self-hate. I can accept me. Because I am completely accepted with God, the old man that I was has been crucified. The new man that I am is something that God is creating and making all the time. So he goes on in verse 17. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now Christ already dwells in your hearts. The meaning of this word, which is katerkeo, means that Christ might be realized to dwell in your hearts. He's there, but... The point is, he's praying that we might realize that Christ is there and that we might, uh, in our experiential knowledge, know that he's settled down within our hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And what does he mean by the length and height and depth that's explained in verse 19? That we might, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now here is the foundation of the divine viewpoint right here. That we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now this is at the bottom of all maturing right here. Why do we need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What knowledge about Him should we grow in? The knowledge of how much He loves us. To grow in the knowledge of His love for me, which surpasses knowledge, we'll never get to the end of the greatness of that love that He has for me, the Christian, and for you. And the more you see that Christ loves you, the more you're going to trust Him because you can only trust someone that you know loves you. And that's been the thrust of this whole course, frankly. Now, how do I know how much God or Christ, in this case, loves me? By going to the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit teaching me how Christ loves me. As evidence by what he did for me on the cross there's the heart of showing how he loves me God proves his love for me and that while I was yet a sinner Christ died for me Romans 5 8 the love of God is poured out within my heart through the Holy Spirit is given me Romans 5 5 now he shows me that now he also shows his great love for me as an individual By how he worked in the lives of the people who are brought forth in the Scripture. You see, faith, which is actually a trust in Christ, faith does not come simply because you know that Christ is all powerful. We know that. Everybody knows that. But that doesn't make me trust him. We know that Christ has got all wisdom if we're a Christian. That doesn't make me trust Him either. What makes me really trust Him when the chips are down? What makes me have the divine viewpoint of life, which looks at it from the standpoint of Christ's ability to cope with it through me? Well, to know that He loves me, and therefore He'll do it. Then I can trust Him. And so this is the great factor that must keep growing in my knowledge and in my actual application of that knowledge to my experience. Now what does this bring about? It brings about the next factor, which is faith. Faith actually becomes more powerful in my life as I see how much Christ loves me and I begin to apply that knowledge to my experience. And so faith is another aspect. Now what happens when this occurs is another factor of, uh, op- uh, of uh, maturity, and that's production. The more I know about Christ, the more I apply what I know about Christ to my experience, the more faith I have. The more faith I have, the more the Holy Spirit is reduced in, or I should say released in my life to produce. And so through me, the Holy Spirit will begin to produce all kinds of things. Now that's why an immature believer will not lead perhaps as many people to Christ as a mature believer will, but he will lead some. And this will vary with individuals. And there are some people when they first receive Christ that because of their background will not trust Christ like, let's say, another one. Let's say, compared to me when I was a young believer, you may not trust God as much. Now, the relativity here has to do with, let's say that this is your mind. Here is your heart, which represents the control center of the mind. Now, up here is your conscious mind. Down here is your subconscious mind. In your first years of life, you formulated basic attitudes about life. And this was influenced by your inherited characteristics. Now, as you grew in life through your environment and experiences, you accumulated certain attitudes about life, certain experiences about life, and they're still in your subconscious mind. Now, one of those experiences is how your parents related to you. Now, if you had parents which did not... Somebody got a leak of steam over there. <laughs> if your parents did not accept you when you didn't perform according to their standards, but they accept you if you have performed according to their standards, then you've got the idea that acceptance is based on performance. And the Holy Spirit will have to show you that when it comes to your relationship to Christ, that's not true. You're not accepted with Christ because of your performance. You're accepted with Christ because of what he did for you on the cross, and that's applied immediately to you the moment you're saved. But it takes a while. The more you have in your experience prior to entering into spiritual life, the more you have the idea that you must gain someone's acceptance by your performance, the longer it will take you to learn that that's not true in your relationship with Christ. So, it takes you longer to see how much Christ loves you. But as you depend upon the Spirit, He will show you. Now this is why we've got different individuals. That's why we shouldn't compare ourselves with each other. That's devastating. But, We must build a relationship directly with Christ and not depending on each other for our basic personality needs. Now, fellowship with other believers should, through looking at their life, show me basic things about Christ. I can learn about how to trust Christ from seeing someone else trust Christ. I can learn about uh, trusting Christ in certain areas by watching someone else do it. That's valid. And Christian fellowship will do that for you. But you never learn to lean on a person for your own personality problems. Like if you've got a problem of insecurity and someone is strong over here, you begin to build your security by leaning on this other person. That will get you into all kinds of trouble. Your security must come from leaning on Christ, not from leaning on people. And so your relationship must be established vertically before it can be established horizontally. Otherwise, you're going to always be going around depending on people. Now, as the Holy Spirit who is in your heart begins to work, He takes the word of God in the conscious mind, and then he begins to work down where you know nothing about it in your basic personality. We all have what I call soul kinks, and these little birds here represent soul kinks. Now, soul kinks are the experiences you've had in your past life which were misunderstood and uh see? misunderstood experience is the we'll different part, your heart, which brings them into your consciousness, and there are certain things that come into your mind that you don't, don't understand. For instance, uh, I've had in the past, it's not the problem now that it used to be, but I used to have tremendous hostilities that used to come into my conscious mind. And I would just want to really hurt somebody, and I wouldn't know why. Now, I never understood why that was true, and it was still true while I was walking in the Spirit. There would come times when i just get bugged, and i just want to smash somebody. And I never... And I found that the more I... You know, the temptation is, as a believer, here you are walking in the Spirit, and then one of these crazy ideas comes into your conscious mind. The temptation is to say... Oh, man, I couldn't be walking in the Spirit. How could I have such a thought if I'm walking in the Spirit? You see, a temptation is not a sin. That's a part of your old self, which has already been judicially judged and done away with, trying to manifest itself. And if you try to turn upon this thought and deal with it yourself, you get into a tailspin of introspection, your eyes are not on the problem solver who is Christ, and pretty soon you're utterly defeated and in depression. Now what should you do? Well, you should realize that if you're walking in the Spirit, it means that the Holy Spirit is taking what you are at that moment in your degree of maturity and he's making the most of it. And that your responsibility when temptation comes into your life is not to try to grapple with it yourself but just in an attitude of dependence upon the Holy Spirit because you know Christ loves you and he'll deal with these things he knows all about you you just commit this problem to him and he will deal with it so that you are not trying to suppress it yourself which is impossible but you're committing it to Christ who deals with it through the Holy Spirit And pretty soon, all of these soul kinks that you've got in your mind, the Holy Spirit builds a wall of protection around it. So that, as you grow in Christ, even the psychological problems that all of us have to some degree are dealt with. The Holy Spirit deals in the subconscious level in a way that we don't even understand. And he does so on the basis of us consciously trusting him as much as we know in the conscious life. Yes, sir. Well, I believe you'll find the answer to that in verse 16. It says, the question was, is there any scripture to prove that the Holy Spirit really does work upon our psychological problems? Uh, Verse 16 says that He strengthens us with power through His Spirit in the inner man. This is working on the inside, you see. And the problem is that As we see the love of Christ, that uh, we are filled up with all the fullness of God, which means to be brought into maturity and made whole people. And then in verse 20 it says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. And he tells us that all of these things that are necessary are done within. Another verse, of course, is James chapter 1. Where it shows the process of of remaking our souls is accomplished by the Word of God, and of course used by the Holy Spirit. It says uh, James 1:21, page 389. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, which means an attitude of dependence, receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. Now, this is not talking about giving you salvation here. It's talking about the progressive deliverance of your souls. Now, this is your soul right here. And he implants the word deep within your subconscious mind by the Holy Spirit, who, working as we trust him consciously, he works subconsciously. He begins to build us up on the inside. Now that's why I've always said that the Bible had an answer to psychological problems before Freud. You see, salvation deals with the soul, which is the real man. And the greatest need of any person, no matter what his problem, is to come to see how much Christ loves him. To accept the forgiveness of Christ, which removes him from the, one of the greatest basic problems, which is guilt and then to accept the love of Christ, which begins to make him trust Christ so that the Holy Spirit is set free to work in my life in whatever is needed. you understand? Now, it's very important in closing to see this, that we all have certain personality traits which are wrong when we become a Christian. For instance, uh, let me think. A guy might be impolite when he first becomes a Christian. Now, that guy can walk in the Spirit and still be impolite. But there's a time in his life when the Holy Spirit will begin to deal with that. But you see, the Holy Spirit doesn't deal with every psychological problem we have all at once. It's a process If the Holy Spirit pointed out every problem in your personality the moment you became a Christian, boy, you would just be totaled out. Now, as I walk in the Spirit, He progressively deals with my problems. Same as my habits. Every person has certain habits when he becomes a Christian. The Holy Spirit doesn't say get rid of all of them today. But progressively, as you depend upon the Spirit, He will put his finger on one thing and then another and then another and when he does you depend upon him to take care of that then i hope this is clear very important when a person is walking in the spirit it does not mean he is perfect experientially but it means as far as god is concerned he's completely acceptable experientially now it's completely acceptable in his position because he's in christ but he is pleasing to the lord there's such a thing as a christian being either pleasing or displeasing to the lord the christian is pleasing to the lord as long as he is consciously depending upon the spirit for whatever degree of knowledge he has at that moment so there is a relativity one Christian may be walking in the Spirit and doing one thing, which I could not walk in the Spirit and do. I'd be walking in the flesh if I did it. But it de- depends upon the degree of maturity. Yes, sir. Whatever if you have a problem, you trust the Lord for it, and it doesn't seem to get solved. Man, to answer that will take tomorrow, so we better close. Shall, I'll, I'll answer that tomorrow. Savior, write your questions down because tomorrow we'll have a question and answer session. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, and that we are complete in Christ. Father, that in him we have all that we need, that he brings us to himself as a new person, that he makes us whole persons. We become complete in him. We are complete in him, and experientially we progressively become what he has made us. Father, I pray that each one might mature in the Christian life daily and progressively. For Jesus' sake, amen.